Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour as we remember Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. I'm Deacon Pedro. Joseph Ratzinger was born on April 16, 1927, in rural Bavaria in the south of Germany. He and his brother Georg were both ordained to the priesthood in 1951 for the Archdiocese of Munich and Freisen. Father Joseph Ratzinger taught theology at various German universities and attended the Second Vatican Council as a theological advisor to the Archbishop of Cologne, Cardinal Joseph Frings. In 1977, Pope Paul VI appointed Joseph Ratzinger Archbishop of Munich and Freising and made him a cardinal. Four years later, Pope John Paul II appointed him Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, a post that he held for 24 years until the end of John Paul II's papacy, when he, Joseph Ratzinger, was elected Pope. He said he chose the name Benedict in tribute to two great leaders who heroically shun the light of faith in a troubled world. St. Benedict of Nursia, who founded Western monasticism in the midst of the ruins of European decline, and Pope Benedict XV, who called for peace amidst the horrors of World War I. As Pope, Benedict spoke and wrote with sharp clarity on the dangers of relativism, materialism, consumerism, and greed. He made compellingly clear arguments for the mutuality of faith and reason, the importance of organic reform over strict continuity or rupture with the past, and the need for global financial regulation. On February 11, 2013, Pope Benedict XVI stunned the world by announcing his resignation, the first pope to willfully step down in over seven centuries. It was an act of humility that would reverberate into the deeply pastoral pontificate of his successor, Pope Francis. Now known as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he resided at the Mater Ecclesia Monastery in the Vatican Gardens. He continued to demonstrate the path of simple humility by serving his final years in quiet prayer and contemplation. On December 31st, 2022, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI died at the age of 95. Today we would like to remember him. Earlier this week, I spoke with Cardinal Gerald Lacroix, Archbishop of Quebec, and asked him how he thought Pope Benedict should be remembered and how he, personally, will remember him. And then, he told me a very special story. Pope Benedict will most certainly be remembered as a, a humble, a generous, faithful servant of the gospel, of the church, and of humanity. He was uh, a man of service all his life as a wonderful theologian, man of prayer, of humility, a man of many personal relationships, uh, a man who knew how to, to speak with rich content and yet accessible. Uh, he'll be remembered as a man who had the courage to step down and resign. I say the courage because it takes courage. When it's it's been six centuries where no pope had resigned, he said, no, I'm no longer the man for this situation, and it's time I resign. It took a lot of courage, and he remained a man of prayer until his death. 
supporting Pope Francis and the Church, and that is to be commended. Personally, I will recall uh, many beautiful encounters with Pope Benedict. Uh, he appointed me bishop, auxiliary bishop in Quebec, and a little over a year and a half later, he appointed me archbishop of Quebec. And he told the papal nuncio, when he accepts, tell him I want to see him two weeks after he uh, takes charge of the archdiocese. So I wondered why he wanted to see me. And I did go to Rome, and he received me in a private audience in his, uh, in his library for close to half an hour. And all he wanted to do was, at first, to thank me for having accepted and to encourage me. He knew that the shoes were pretty big to fill for me. I was, uh, I was young, uh, too young as far as I'm concerned, but it was not my call. And, uh, and uh, he welcomed me, he listened to me, gave me some good counsel. That's what a good father of a family does, yeah. And then a few years later, when I was created cardinal uh, in the first consistory of Pope Francis, uh, he was there. He attended the celebration, the consistory in St. Peter's Basilica. And after receiving uh, the Beretta, uh, the red cap, the, uh, the, the uh, cardinal's ring, and then the, uh, uh, the document that says that the parish which is mine, I greeted Pope Francis. And as I went down the steps, Pope Benedict was the first I greeted. And he saw me coming and he says, ah, Quebec, it takes a lot of hope to work in Quebec. <laughs> so he remembered who I was. You know, for a man that age, I hadn't seen him for a few years. It really touched me. He's a man of personal relationship, very kind, very humble, but you felt his prayer and his support. And that I am very, very grateful for that. I could share with you this story. This is a very special story. I had uh, I was scheduled to go to Rome when I was a priest, as I, I was a member of the uh, World Council of Secular Institutes. And we had a meeting at the end uh, of March. So I went to Rome. And uh, my parents, when they found out I was going to Rome, they said, uh, gee, we've never been to Rome. It would be nice to go, you know. So we organized the trip in early January. So end of March, we go to Rome. But before I left for Rome, that is when I got the call to become a bishop. But it was not public yet. I knew, but my parents didn't know. So I had asked for, uh, through the Archbishop of Quebec at the time, uh, for tickets to go to the papal audience on Wednesday in St. Peter's Square. And lo and behold, we are in prima fila, first row. I'm in the first row, my parents the second row. So when Pope Benedict came to greet me, I told him in his ear, very low, softly, you know, my name is Gerald Lacroix from Quebec. You just appointed me a bishop. And he says, oh, yes, I just signed the papal bulla. Congratulations. I said, uh, my parents are here with me. And he said immediately, do they know? I says, no, it's not public yet. So I took his arm and I said, Holy Father, would you want to tell them? He said, of course, immediately. Can you imagine that? And so my, I told my parents, come on up from the second row. They came and he told my parents, I just appointed your son a bishop in Quebec. Now, they didn't understand a thing. They were so surprised. So I took the Holy Father's arm a second time, and I said, Holy Father, I don't think they understood you. Would you like to repeat? He said, of course. So he said it slower, 
<laughs> and now they caught on. Can you imagine the Holy Father telling my parents, I'm making your son a bishop? It was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. That's how delicate this man was and spontaneous and close. So that's that's quite a story in, in my parents' life and in my life. And uh, the picture I have up on the wall at my parents' home is uh, is that my parents uh, listening to the Holy Father. Of course, my dad had a gift. He had knit my, the Holy Father some, some woolen slippers, red slippers, and my mom had a can of maple syrup. My family makes maple syrup. So, But uh, that day, it's not the slippers or the maple syrup that was the... <laughs> <laughs> the hit of the day was that news yeah it sounds like it thank you thank you so much uh your eminence for this and uh i guess sorry for your loss i guess it's all of our, yes. our losses yes 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 yeah 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 we have uh this humble and wonderful servant is with the lord he will continue to do what he did on earth to pray for us he dedicated these last 10 years of his life in prayer and he will continue to pray for us, for the church that he loves. He gave his whole life as a servant of the Lord. And uh, I think all of humanity owes him quite a bit. He not only reached out to, to Christians, to Catholics. He, in all his trips, he was very uh, keen to go visit other faith traditions. He had a lot of respect for human beings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, another thing I think he will be remembered for if we go back and read his, uh, not only his homilies, but the talks he gave, his uh, remarks in different occasions, he knew how to speak about religion and politics. He knew how to speak about public servants and, and the service of politics in life, in society. And I think we have a lot to learn from him yet. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I've heard so many people say that he might one day be named a doctor of the church. So that, that's an interesting, I mean, he was such a good teacher. That's how I'm going to remember him. You know, usually people that uh, that pass on and are declared saints are, are uh, named the doctors of the church. I think this man could already be declared a doctor of the church. His teachings, his writings are so profound. He was, of course, as we all know, a, a disciple of St. Augustine. Not that they knew each other, <laughs> of course, but he's a disciple, uh, a man with a lot of reflection, intellectually very sound, but spiritually very solid. And Augustine and Benedict have that very much in common. He knew how to translate good doctrine into life life giving words and that is that is quite a treat and it's quite a gift we inherit that from pope benedict and i thank god for him that was a conversation i had with cardinal gerald lacroix archbishop of quebec about his memories and thoughts on pope benedict the 16th there's something about Pope Benedict, I think, which is, you know, we always talk about Benedict the theologian, but I think there was a part of Benedict which was also saying to the Western world, you've forgotten how to think, you've lost your faith in reason. There's something touchingly, I don't know whether naive's the word, but touchingly um, faithful about Benedict, that he, if you like, continued to believe in, in the power of reason long after Western society had, you know, stopped thinking about big ideas and had decided to go shopping. 
you know, Benedict was the one who said, no, ideas matter, concept, how we think matters, that's part of who we are. Uh, so I think of him uh, as a holy intellect, I think of him as somebody who, uh, who brought faith and reason into uh, probably the greatest um, synthesis, I think, uh, of anybody in the modern world. I think Benedict's great contribution to the church in the modern world has been to, to formulate Christianity in crystal clear concepts that appeal immediately to our reason and to our hearts. I had a, just an enormous gift for that. So I think you know, it will be Benedict the teacher that he'll be remembered for. But I think there's a part of Benedict that people don't see, which is that he was also a mystic and that he saw things very clearly. And one of the things he saw was that the church had actually got lost in some way in its response to relativism and secularism and had gone down a kind of ethical path. And that's why he said in 2005, right at the beginning of that remarkable document, Deus Caritas Est, he says, yeah, Christianity is not... Uh, a lofty idea. It's the encounter with a person, with the God of mercy, which changes the way we think and our horizon. And I think he saw that, that that's why he called the Synod on the new evangelization. He knew something had gone wrong, and he called the world's bishops together to consider how it could be put right. That's a visionary. That's not a conservative. He's not a conservative. He's a visionary. Well, I mean, one of the things that Benedict, of course, endlessly suffered from was it was a, his public image problem. I mean, he, he was endlessly seen because of his role at the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. He was seen as this doctrinal enforcer, this hard man, this, you know, German, strict. Yeah. And, of course, the impact of when people actually met him and saw who he was was enormous as a result. This happened in the UK, where the weeks prior to his arrival had been very, very tense, and there was a lot of anger against the church. So Benedict arrived with his warm grandfatherly smile, you know, kissed a baby in Glasgow, the nation's hearts melted. And from then on, it was actually 24-7 coverage, and the nation, in those few days, grew to love Pope Benedict. Uh, and that was his enormous capacity. He drew people to him. He was a very, very attractive, humble, tender figure, really quite at odds with his public image, which, which as I say, made the impact of his arrival that much greater. Those were the thoughts of Austin Ivory, biographer of Pope Francis, as he remembers Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is a special Remembering Pope Benedict edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Earlier this week, I also spoke with Sister Jill Golding, professor of systematic theology at Regis College in Toronto. She was appointed by Pope Benedict as a theological expert to the Synod on the New Evangelization of 2012. I think, though, across the board, people would be willing to acknowledge the depth of his theological legacy to us all. There's a richness there that is being plumbed and will be plumbed into the future. That's not to say that his work is just for theologians and abstract, but, for example, his trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth is very accessible and particularly because he stresses the importance of an encounter with Jesus. And that was something that came up for him in the Synod of uh, of 2012, when he said, everyone, everyone has the right to an encounter with Jesus. So that was, as it were, the purpose and the direction of any kind of evangelization, to to, uh, open that opportunity for people. 
Um, you told me earlier that he was a great influence in your own personal, uh, I guess. Exactly. So tell us about that. What, what, what about it influenced you so much? I think it was the reality of the depth of his theology and the rootedness of that theology in his own experience of Christ and in and through Christ, his, his experience of the reality of the Trinity. He said, um, and I paraphrase this because it's a much longer quote, that he said the that in terms of the reality of his existence, he was not thrown together like some sort of theory of um, atoms combining and actually making him as person. But he spoke about the reality of the human person and himself as being loved into being. And that stress on this reality of the love of God that overflows into creation uniquely of each human person is something that he derived particularly from the church fathers, but is something that was a, was a dynamic imperative in his own theological understanding and in what he wanted to share of that. And it's such a hopeful and inspiring reality. And that also takes uh, further um, uh, further concreteness in his papal encyclicals, particularly the encyclical that he wrote initially, the first one, God is Love, Deus et, et, um, Caritas Est, and then also too when he moved to look at hope and in the draft that he had fully prepared for Pope Francis with regard to faith. You're a bit of a Vatican expert, can I say? So how how would you say how would you say that he influenced or or his contributions to the council? The the Vatican Council in itself, I the three uh, three key documents that he had influence on was De Verbum, document on Revelation, Lumen Gentium, the the dogmatic constitution on the Church and Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on um, uh, the church in the modern world. Those were three really key important um, areas. And then from that, his, his work thereafter followed through on what he considered to be the trajectory of the Vatican Council. And even later into his pontificate, before he resigned, there was that sense of he reflected back on that time and the importance of that time uh, and the documents in terms of the life of the church and how these are uh, key significant documents for us to keep returning to and carrying forward in the life of the church. And that he also reflected too on the small, as he put it, the small part he had to play in that. His own simplicity and humility comes through very powerfully when he speaks about things like that. How will Sister Jill Golden remember Pope Benedict? That is a, a very good question. Uh, Pope Benedict appointed me to the 2012 Synod on the new evangelization and transmission of the Christian faith as a so-called theological expert. I say so-called only because the very term implies something that in all humility one aspires to rather than one says that one is. Um, I was very conscious in that time. You could not sit in the synod hall 
for nearly 30 days without being cognizant of the holiness of the man who was in charge of our church. He he would speak um, when he gave his own scriptural reflection, perhaps, at the beginning of a day, he spoke without notes, but with a profundity um, that moved people's hearts. At the end of a morning, he would sum up what had gone on within that morning without notes, which clearly gave expression to his own, the fineness of his theological mind, but also to his ability to grasp the essentials of what was being raised up. I think also too of the simplicity of the man, um, that he was not, um, he did not have, uh, his theology could be dense at times, but not complex or abstract. Um, for me, uh, he he would, his legacy would be both theological, but also to in the most powerful um, expression of any human person who would influence us. A simplicity uh, that is rooted in his own encounter with the Lord. Um, his own desire to communicate the reality of God's passionate engagement with each one of us. And that is the most uh, powerful legacy I think any Christian leader can live, can live and leave to us. Because in their own person, they leave a conviction to which we can return when we have, as it were, perhaps low points in our own lives, in our own faith, in our own convictions, when we go through dark times, we look to the patterns of saints. And quite frankly, I think in years and generations to come, uh, Pope Benedict also will be raised to the altars. That was a conversation I had earlier this week with Sister Jill Golding, who was appointed as a theological expert to the Synod on the New Evangelization by Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict was a teacher, and and he would start out his Wednesday audiences giving these professorial lectures. But he was such a good teacher that he knew immediately when the people weren't following him and when he had to kind of bring it down um, to a a clearer, more simple level. And and he was amazing at it. He would set aside his text and he would just speak. And and these complicated theological um, concepts would become something that, that people could understand. I also found him to be much more in touch than John Paul II was with the way contemporary people actually think. Like I remember on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception once, uh, maybe it might have been the first time he celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception at the Spanish, at the Spanish stairs. And he said um, something about how People today have this strange idea that being a saint is boring. Therefore, they don't want to be holy. And I kind of was like, 
told him. <laughs> you know, I was like, how did you know that about me? You know, it was, it was one of those moments. Those were the thoughts of Cindy Wooden, Rome Bureau Chief for Catholic News Service, as she remembers Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is a special Remembering Pope Benedict edition of the Salt and Light Hour. You can learn more about Salt and Light Media and watch our programs at slmedia.org. Coming up in our second half hour, we consider Pope Benedict's legacy with church historian Christopher Bellito. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Salt and Light Hour, Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. I've heard that Pope Benedict XVI will, one day, be named a doctor of the church. True or not, we'll have to wait and see. However, I think it's clear, as we have been hearing, that he will be remembered as a great theologian, a great teacher, a great writer, and a courageous pope. To help us address some of these questions and to continue remembering Pope Benedict, I also spoke with Dr. Christopher Bellito. He is a church historian and professor of history at Kane University in New Jersey. We started by learning a bit about Joseph Ratzinger before he was Pope. We have different types of people who become popes, and what we have here is a professor, a theologian. Uh, So he grows up uh, in Germany during the war. He's ordained a diocesan priest. He's not a member of a religious order in 1951. And he quickly embarks on uh, an academic career. He gets his doctorate in 1953, and he spends his career in Germany in a number of places, in uh, in Bonn, in Munich, and uh, he's most most well-known for being connected to Tübingen, um, but also in uh, in Regensburg. Mm -hmm. What is he writing on? He is what we would call a systematic theologian. Um, That is, he's interested in doctrine as opposed to a moral theologian or scripture or church history. Right. Um, Systematics is his field, what's called fundamental theology, his most famous book, and he wrote almost 70 books. His most famous book was probably Introduction to Christianity in 1968, which was the textbook mm-hmm. throughout the um, 1970s. But he also had a very strong interest in liturgy. And he wrote several dozen books on liturgy. And the most important of those would have been the 1990 book, The Spirit of Liturgy. Most of the time when people talk about Joseph Ratzinger, they have, they have kind of an egghead theologian disconnected from reality. But in fact, there is a strong pastoral dimension to much of his writing. And that is very strong in this book, Spirit of Liturgy from 1990. So if you look at those writings from that period, would would you say, is it fair to say that he was ahead of his time or he was a reformer? I think that he was caught up in all of that. You know, Vatican II, which met from 1962 to 1965, doesn't, you know, John XXIII doesn't light a switch. There had been decades and decades of developments in theology in especially Latin America and Europe, where people were asking new questions, they were revisiting old questions, they were using this thing called the historical critical method because we have new new ways of looking at texts in terms of archaeology and linguistics. And he was caught up in all of that. So it's not really um, right to put him in in kind of a box at that period of time because everybody was kind of all interested in this new stuff, and he was as interested as anyone else and so well-informed that he was brought to 
the council as what's called a peritus or an expert by the Archbishop of um, Cologne. So he was involved in okay. drafting documents in this very fruitful period of time. So the council met in four fall terms, mm -hmm. semesters in my world, 1962, three, four, and five. But then the rest of the time, during that period and the rest of the time, Rome was kind of like one big classroom and seminars and bishops were going to, to lectures and informal conversations with people like Joseph Ratzinger and Yves Congar and Henri de Lubac and, and people such as, and, and, and they were all waking up and Ratzinger is fully involved in that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if how what his involvement in, in the council had been. Um, what led to him being appointed at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith? Right. So it, uh, he has a remarkable jump in his career in 1977, where he goes from being a professor to being a bishop to being a cardinal, right. all in the space of several months. You know, pretty pretty cool for him, I guess. Uh, and he's made an archbishop of his home, Archdiocese, which is which is Munich, where he grew up. He's Bavarian. Some people, when he was elected pope, said, "A German pope? Aren't Germans Lutherans?" Well, Southern Germany is he's is Catholic. Roman Catholic, and Northern Germany is largely Lutheran. Um, but he's not there very long. He's only there for a few years. And he had caught the eye of the new pope, John Paul II, who was elected in 1978. But they knew each other at the council because Karol Wojtyla was one of with the so-called boy bishops. He was only yes, in his yes. late 1930s, excuse me, in his late 30s, late 30s. when he was uh, at the council. And, and they knew each other um, over the years. So in 1981, he's brought to Rome and he is made head of the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith because he has this huge background and, and great reputation in, um, in theology. And, and though there is no vice pope, there's no certainly no co-pope, uh, you know, he's in that inner circle. He's in the upper echelon of the two or three or four most influential people. And because he got to Rome when he was on the younger side, he was head of CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the entire span of, of almost the entire span of that 27-year uh, papacy for uh, 24 of those years. Yeah. Um, do you know what his, some of his contributions would have been as head of the of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith? Well, here's where his reputation takes a harder turn, right? So the so the cliche is that he was God's Rottweiler, yes. right? The attack dog, the Rottweiler, because he's German. Yes. Um, but he he did take a harsh stand because John Paul II was taking a harsh stand. Um, and here's where you can't separate Carol Wojtyla, the man who fought communism behind the Iron Curtain with John Paul II, who continued to fight communism through solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he kind of took the same kind of hard stand toward the, you know, toe the line toward the church. And, and so as head of CDF, that's Joseph Ratzinger's job mm -hmm. to do what the Pope is asking him to do. So he got a reputation for cracking down and in fairness, often without due process. Mm. Uh, so a series of theologians starting probably most famously in the United States with uh, named Charles Curran, Charlie Curran at Catholic University of America. In Brazil, Leonardo Buff, one of the uh, fathers of liberation theology. Later on, Elizabeth Johnson, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, also in the United States at Fordham, at Fordham University. And uh, Jacques Dupuy, 
uh, in Belgium. And questions were often raised about their writings. But if you if you read the diaries of, of some of these people, what they were very frustrated with was that they were not always presented with, here is a list of the things that we think are incorrect. There were, in some cases, those were presented, but those are few and far between. In greater cases, people were, you know, they were told things like, you're making allegations, Jacques de Puy, you're making allegations that all of the religions are equal and that Christianity is not the only path or the preeminent path to salvation. And he would say, well, where in my writings does it say that? Because I don't think I say that in my writings. And, and there was never kind of a formal process. And this frustrated, um, uh, and I would say fairly so, frustrated a lot of people. Yes, interesting. Um, if we skip ahead, so he's elected Pope. Surprisingly. Um, <laughs> um, what do you think is significant about the fact that he chose Benedict as his name? Right. So when popes choose a name, that's like one of the first, you know, neat things that we want to know. So what's going on in their head, right? Yeah. And uh, and so typically in the in the day or two or three afterwards, they will explain their decision, right? Because mm-hmm. because they're sitting there through the votes, and you know they could see the votes coming toward them, right? So they know they're going to be asked two questions. One is, um, this is the formula: uh, Do you accept election? Yeah. And by what name will you be known? So you've been thinking about it. Yeah. He took the name Benedict after Benedict of Nursia, who was the sixth century father of European monasticism. Mm -hmm. And Benedict was not really all that original, Benedict of Nursia in the sixth century. There were lots of rules that were floating around, regulations, and he kind of brought them all together and took the best and avoided the worst. And he really saw himself now that the Roman Empire, you know, had dissipated as the apostle to to fill in the vacuum, right? So Christianity had been the glue now of Europe, was becoming deeper. And Benedict, Benedictine monasticism, yes, we have monks and nuns in monasteries and convents, but many became missionaries. And that's what he said. That's what Joseph Ratzinger said, is that I see myself, I, I want to re-Christianize Europe because Europe is not all that Christian anymore. It is Christian culturally, but not necessarily, you know, the numbers of people who are going to church are low, and that he wanted to kind of bring Christianity back. So he saw himself in a missionary role. And this is something that I have to say I found surprising about his papacy. So somebody is elected at an advanced age. What's the cliche? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes he was able to move from the professor Pope, a professor theologian, head of CDF, to this new role as Pope and speak in a new voice. We see this in his encyclical Deus Caritas. Other times he couldn't. It's amazing that for a man who relaxed by playing Mozart, Mm -hmm. there was sometimes a tone deaf quality to his papacy. I'm glad you mentioned the encyclical because I was going to ask you about that. So obviously he continued writing. He continued being a theologian. He published books, but he also wrote three, I believe, encyclicals. Yeah, um, and I think the first one um, is the most important. It's called Deus Caritas. Yeah, okay. Tell us about that. Why, and Not so much why it's important, but what does it say about where he was directing his papacy, I guess? Yeah, 
it, it there's an example where Deus Caritas Est does not read like a systematic, he was a very systematic writer, right? So you could insert, you know, the joke yeah. about Germans being organized. He was a very systematic writer, but there was an elegance to his writing. Mm. Um, and in Deus Caritas Est, that elegance, that that old world courtly figure who loved Mozart comes through. It's a document that really sings. Um, and in it, he, he gives a, a um, almost kind of like a sermon, right? Yeah. On, not a treatise, but a sermon that love, the love that is true is the love that seeks, seeks service. And it seeks service through the path of suffering and sacrifice. And though this was not new, he had been talking about this, the way he wrote it, and now of course that he's Pope, had a different tone to it mm. now at the same time he writes this three volume uh uh book called jesus of nazareth yes it's yes so long of it course. needs three volumes right yes and, and that was like the big writing project right mm. uh, so we imagine that he's going to the conclave in 2005 figuring i'm not going to be elected and my retirement project is going to be to write this, <laughs> this three book. volume yeah he does that too it's very interesting that at the beginning, for a man who was head of CDF, who was very clear as to what was the ordinary and extraordinary magisterium or teaching authority of the church, he says in the preface that he's writing as a private theologian, that he's not invoking his authority um, as Pope. It's a very careful kind of statement. I think the um, book, it says it's authored by Joseph Ratzinger, right? Yeah. It doesn't say Benedict. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and that's interesting because in his post-papacy, which is a whole other story that we should get yeah. into, yes. there was confusion. And, and I would argue that he should not have signed anything, Benedict Sixteenth, even Benedict Sixteenth, emeritus pope. Even after. Most the... of the time, that's what he was signing things. He kept writing on a very few occasions. He signed it, Joseph Ratzinger. But I think that's confusing. Interesting. Yeah, and well, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. We, we hope that we're going to get to that. Um, is it fair to say that it was a challenging papacy for him? Yeah, well, first is, you know, I can remember when John Paul II died, and that wasn't a surprise, right? It was actually very painful, because if you remember the last several years of his life, here's a man who's, you know, Parkinson's just eats your body. Mm -hmm. And the last, from January to April, so he dies, John Paul II dies the week after Easter, he had been back and forth to the hospital, I think, twice. And it was really, really hard. It's like if you've ever been at the side of a very, very aged parent or yes. grandparents, aunt or uncle, and and the time has come, but the body is still fighting. Mm -hmm. It was hard to watch, right? And I think a lot of people, of course, they're thinking about the conclave and a number of reporters said, I bet there are a lot of cardinals who want to be Pope. And I said the exact opposite. John Paul II was such the guy. Would you want to be the guy who follows the guy? No. And we all missed Ratzinger. You know, everyone, he was right there in front of us. And everyone was saying, you know, it doesn't have to be in it. Who's going to succeed John Paul II? It doesn't have to be an Italian anymore because we broke that bar. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to be somebody who's on the older side maybe an Italian because we had such a long papacy and, and, and Ratzinger hit all of those buttons. And yet nobody said he wasn't on the top of anyone's right. top five list. No. So I think that the, 
that the conclave to elect that elected Benedict XVI was a decision not to decide. The interesting thing is we now know, this is all supposed to be secretive, but cardinals afterwards, when the wine is flowing, like to- Yes, like to talk. Like the rest of us, right? Yeah. Um, said that Bergoglio, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, who became Francis, Pope Francis, kind of came in second. It doesn't quite work that way, but that, that he had a rising number of votes. Yeah. And that it looked like a stalemate was occurring and that Bergoglio took his name out because he didn't want to be a a a figure or a, or a lightning rod for opposition. And then Ratzinger's numbers just just kind of exploded. So I you get the sense that after that long papacy of John Paul II, the cardinals wanted to go in a di different direction but couldn't quite. So looking back, hindsight being twenty twenty, of course, it looks like like. Benedict was a transitional pope. That's what, yeah. You know, almost like a coda to, or a bridge, a coda mm. to the John Paul II papacy and a bridge to this next papacy. And of course, the difference between John Paul II was, you know, John Paul II, extrovert, Ratzinger, yes. introvert. Yes. Big papacy, small papacy. Yes. You know, John Paul II loved the stadium masses. Benedict hated the stadium masses. Yes. And here's a change that he made. With all due respect to John Paul II, some people said it was a little bit too much about John Paul II, mm. not that it wasn't about Christ. But Ratzinger brought the papacy down, and he made the papacy about the papacy, not about him. Mm -hmm. And and he, he and that's where the resignation comes in, right? It, it's that he said, I can retire. He had a different decision, very famously, John Paul II's, you know, he's not going to resign. You don't come down off the cross. Yeah. I think Ratzinger was looking at that and wondering, well, what if John Paul II went into a persistent vegetative state? There mm -hmm. is no, in the United States, we have a 25th Amendment where you can remove yeah. a president from office. There is no 25th no. Amendment to the Constitution in, in Vatican affairs, in canon law. And so I think maybe in the back of his head, Ratzinger was saying, I'm not going to let that happen to me. But more importantly, I'm not going to let that happen to the church. And so by resigning, he says all the more strongly, the papacy is bigger than a human being. I was going to ask you, I'm glad again that you mentioned the resignation um, and what we can learn. So I guess that is a clear lesson that you see that we can learn from the way the resignation played out. Anything else? Servant leadership at its absolute best. Uh, tremendous honesty, the, the notion that I can't do this. I mean, if you read his resignation letter and then the resignation letter of Celestine V, Celestine V is the most famous pope to have resigned mm -hmm. in 1294 because Dante puts him at the doorway between heaven and hell, reserved for the place for people who have done, Dante did not like Celestine V, the spot for people who have done neither good nor bad in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and he called it Il Gran Refuto, the Great Refusal. Uh, there had been another famous pope who resigned after that. But if you read Celestine V's statement and Benedict XVI's statement, 1294 and 2013, it's the same statement. It says, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Emotionally and physically, I, the, cert, the church is not served by my continuing in this role. Mm -hmm. Who in this world today walks away from power? Who? So what a tremendous, and of course, Ratzinger, the ultimate company man, 
mm-hmm. was like the only one who could have done it, you know, and made it legitimate. Which led us into this whole post papacy. I don't even know emeritus papacy. Um, um, what what? I mean, nobody could have planned what that was going to look like, and I guess we're still figuring it out. What are your thoughts? Um, what can we learn about this? Maybe if, if, there, if it happens again, the, the next former papacy, um, how can it, can it be improved? Is it an institution? Like, what do we need to learn about, about this? Yeah, I think so. And Francis, Pope Francis has said that he thinks that the resignation of Ratzinger, of Benedict XVI, makes this an institution, mm-hmm. that it can happen again. And it, it was... It was muddled. Um, uh, Benedict's papacy was one of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So he would try to do something well, and then it, it, it didn't quite always come out that way. So for instance, he was actually stronger than John Paul II on getting rid of pedophile priests. He in, increased the um, statue of limitations. He shortened the process to laicize people. But in one of the documents, he linked pedophilia with women's ordination to the priesthood. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of this odd, you know, connection. He reinstated or, or broadened the ability of people to say the mass in Latin, the, the math, the, what some people call the old mass. Yeah. But when he did that, he didn't change the language on Good Friday, which is very insulting to Jews. Right. right. He he brought back a schismatic bishop, mm-hmm. but that schismatic bishop ended up being a Holocaust denier. So, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's he's trying to do something good. You know, same thing with the post papacy. So he mm-hmm. says, for instance, that the reason he wore white, the single worst thing that could happen is you wear white because it makes people think there are two popes. And huh. he says there weren't any clothes, any other clothes in my size, which is kind of like, you know, you're in the Vatican. Right. How, how hard is that to get a bishop's robes? <laughs> he invented the title. He, he himself invented the title Pope Emeritus, which makes sense because he's a professor. Right. So we all have the right yes. a woman retires. She's Professor Emerita or a bishop. Right. Or a bishop. But is he the Pope Emeritus or is he the Bishop of Rome Emeritus? And and my own feeling, mm. which is very blunt. But if when you're elected, you take a name, if you are no longer Pope, if Benedict resigns, then he's no longer Benedict. Right. And so a number of questions come up. One is, what should he wear? And the answer is clear. He should be dressed in a bishop's robe because he never stops being a bishop. Could he become a cardinal again? Maybe, probably not a good idea. Mm. What name should he be called? I would say that we should call him Bishop Joseph because he is a bishop. And then you keep that kind of first papal name style, right? Right. Right. Um, he certainly he took off his fisherman's ring mm. and that was destroyed and that will be buried with him. I think that that destruction should take place um, publicly. But most importantly, he shouldn't be writing anymore, which may sound very, very harsh and restrictive. But he said that he I want to give you a quotation from his uh, the day after his resignation. He said, I am going to live a life, quote, hidden from the world. And four years later, he said his intention was, quote, apt to be, quote, absolutely not accessible to the media. Hmm. And that was not true. He right. continued to publish. He continued to publish under the name of Benedict XVI, though emeritus. 
And I think just think it was very, very confusing because some of the things that he said or is purported to have said, there was some question about a shadow papacy, seemed to go against what Pope Francis was saying. So for instance, in 2019, Pope Francis has this huge summit synod on the pedophilia scandal, and especially let's make sure that bishops who moved pedophiles around, that there's also right. penalties for them and that they could be removed. And, and he put out a very long letter that seems to contradict everything that came out of the synod. Yeah. And I'm not sure he wrote that letter, I have to say, because if you read that letter, it doesn't sound like him. Interesting. It sounds like a piece cobbled from here and a piece cobbled from here. And uh -huh. I wonder whether people weren't saying he said, right? Of right. an older, older man with a brilliant mind of diminishing capacity. All right, we, we, we must say that mm -hmm. in fairness. There was some question as to whether he co-authored a book with Cardinal Robert yes. Sarah, the former yes. um, head of the Congregation for Worship, right, yes. for the liturgy. And uh, the the byline on the book says, Benedict and Cardinal Sarah, yes. he asked the publisher to take his name off the book. And the publisher said, no, I, I mean, as somebody who works in publishing, I, I can't imagine what was behind that. Right. Um, and and so that just can't be. And yeah, all I see. Communication yeah. of the former pope must go through the Vatican press. Right, you're right. Yeah, it has to be. Absolutely. So it makes sense. It makes sense that if it's going to become an institution, it, they need to clarify it, and maybe that's that somebody's working on that. Um, he will be remembered. Obviously, what do you think his greatest contribution will be remembered as? Well, I think as as Deus Caritas asked. Mm -hmm. and the three volumes on Jesus are his masterwork. Yeah. He would have written the three volumes on Jesus anyway in his retirement, but Deus Caritas S is, is an encyclical that we wouldn't have had, or at least mm -hmm. in that form. Um, and and I, I know that this sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I don't mean it that way. I think his resignation, because his resignation became a great yes. teaching moment. Yes, yes, absolutely. Do you think he would he would be canonized or named Doctor of the Church? You know, I'd, uh, those are two different things, and yes. I'm not a big fan of papal canonizations. I think that there should be a 50 or 75 year moratorium on them just because papacies are complicated things. I think we need to stop that juggernaut. Um, I think it is possible that a later generation, and again, as an historian, I think at least decades have to pass, mm -hmm. um, that he may be named a doctor of the church, you know, but but I don't. I'm an historian, not a prophet. <laughs> but you are a historian, so you will remember him as well. How will Chris Belito remember Joseph Ratzinger? Um, in his whole life, even people who disagreed with him, even people who were targeted by CDF, said that they found him a person who was personally, obviously full of grace, full of tremendous humility, working hard to figure things out, and certainly the, the act of resignation is a message to a mo the modern world that needs it, which is mm -hmm. humility is still a virtue. Amen. Yeah, that's a lesson in itself. That was a conversation I had with Dr. Christopher Belito, professor of history at Kane University. That conversation first aired on Salt and Light Television, and you can watch the full interview as well as the memories and thoughts expressed by Cardinal Lacroix, Austin Ivory, Sister Jill Golding, and Cindy Wooden that we heard earlier in the program at our website, slmedia.org. We are now going to leave you with a song, perhaps the only song that's been written about Pope Benedict, 
by singer-songwriter Aaron Berghaus. That will take us to the end of the program. If you have any comments or would like to share your memories or thoughts on Pope Benedict XVI, write to me, pedro at eselmedia.org, or look for me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thank you for being with us today. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been a special Remembering Pope Benedict edition of the Sultanite Hour. Here now is Erin Berghaus telling us how she came to write the song and her song, Pope Benedict. I'll never forget the moment that St. John Paul II passed away. And I fell to my knees. My heart was broken. I had such love for St. John Paul II. And as I watched the providential plan of God unfold in the moment that Pope Benedict came out to the balcony, I could see the Holy Spirit in his eyes. I could feel the presence of God, the peacefulness of love come across the television. And at that moment, I knew that it was the spirit of St. John Paul II and the presence of Pope Benedict that would now be guiding us, my soul, the church. That was what inspired my soul to write this song. That is the reflection of my heart. And I pray, I pray that this song touches your heart. I pray in thanksgiving for the great goodness of the soul of St. John Paul II, and I pray for the soul of Pope Benedict. May God love and bless you. Do you remember where you were on the day that you heard the Holy Father John Paul II had passed away? One of those memories cemented in my life where I fell to my knees I broke down and cried As the hours and the days flew by I watched the ever-changing world gather and unite At the break of new dawn then came the smoke The Holy Spirit through the cardinals spoke Pope Benedict, so perfect, chosen for the part to fill this open heart with God's love. Pope Benedict, so perfect, chosen for the part to fill this open heart with God's love. leaves us in his mercy and love he gave us his church through the heart of his son thanks to the Eucharist the church is reborn Dominus Jesus Jesus is Lord Pope Benedict so perfect chosen open heart with God's love Pope Benedict so perfect chosen for the part to fill this